chapter 12. Um, I'm just going to, I already went through the first few verses of chapter 12, but I'm going to just read this call of Abraham again, just to get it in the context of his uh, lack of faith and his descent into disbelief and fear and the consequences that it causes. I'm going to uh, just open up real quickly, just spend a minute and a half or so talking about yesterday. It was awesome. But as we were walking um, through the streets, a woman was shouting out her window. She was obviously pro-abortion. And um, I had, and ahead of me, I saw an of Christian shout back at her. And, you know, the best thing to do instead of shouting back at people just to stop and see the, the Holy Spirit's drawing. <laughs> Somebody... Obviously, it was bothering her. So we stopped, me and Tim and Nate and a couple other people stopped to, be, to share the gospel with her and, and to stand for life. And um, she used the typical arguments that are made um, mostly, was, it's started mostly where she was centered on the fact and, and asking us, and, and I had, a, uh, in particular, was, I was starting a conversation with her. So she was asking me if I wanted to uh, push the laws and, and act um, and, and, and uh, put into office politicians that would make abortion illegal. And uh, I said, of course, we want to stop babies from being murdered. And she said, well, how can you cause a woman to be in pain for nine months carrying a baby that she doesn't want? And um, we continued with her logic and brought her logic to its inevitable end in utilitarianism and atheism and evolution, which ends in abject nihilism. That you can do anything you want at any time as long as it benefits the race. This is the basis and foundation of eugenics, which has had its real start it's, uh, with Darwin and going on through, um, you know, through Marx, through the Frankfurt School, and Gramsci, and, and these many of these other philosophers that are popular today, Derrida, and some of these others, which I won't go into all those details. But anyway, carrying it logically, we brought her to understand that she cannot say that we are morally... Um, wrong for doing something when she makes a moral judgment against our morality. And it's logically inconsistent. And so she got to the point where she said that <clears throat> uh, she recognized that it was wrong to kill a baby with Down syndrome that's basically a few seconds old, but it's okay if a few seconds earlier that baby is in the womb. At nine months old, you can kill the child who has Down syndrome. And it, it was just abhorrent. But I wanted to bring that part into this discussion because we're going to look at an instance in which some men had the possibility, and this happened in ancient Egypt, in which they would commit murder to take a woman in a legal marriage. So they committed a terrible murderous crime to justify an action that appeared on the, at the face of it, appeared to be moral. They would participate in moral marriages after murdering men to take these women. And we're going to look at that instance in a little bit. But I couldn't help but to see that correlation as I was getting today's study together with the justification for murdering babies in the womb. Well, I can't take care of the baby, so-called. Of course they can. You know, I don't want to carry the baby in my womb because it would be this terrible event for me for nine months of having this parasite sucking the life out of me. And all these terrible justifications they make in order to justify them coming to a moral position, which is, I only want a baby that I can take care of financially, or that I'm able to take care of emotionally. So they justifying this terrible evil of murder to still appear as moral. 
as if they're they still have conscience. And so they want to look good. They want to feel justified because the law of God is written on their hearts, so I can read in Romans chapter 1. And they have a conscience that they know bothers them. At one point during the conversation, uh, my friend Nate, who goes to uh, Clarkson Church of Christ, um, had brought this great, I think it was the perfect sentence of the 20-ish minutes or so we were discussing. And when he asked the woman, he said, you know, how do you know it's wrong for us to tell you it's wrong to murder your baby? She said, it's in my gut. And so his response was, well, what if my gut says that your gut is wrong? It's so perfect. I love aphorisms like that. It's a perfect aphorism. And so, where do you go? You can't. The only place you can go is what Peter said. Who has the words of life? Where am I going to go? You go to the word giver, the life giver, Christ, right? And so it was a, it was a neat opportunity. We talked to a couple of Christians who heard our uh, presuppositional uh, debate with this woman and bring her to law and bring her to Christ and show a really effective means, according to God's word, for evangelism. We were kind and we were gracious. And so it was cool to hear some of the testimonies that some people had given us. And there was a woman who had uh, joined us, <clears throat> and I got her testimony later, and she was entering into, some re- into the debate as well. And she had some really good things to say to the woman. And she had just gotten baptized. She got saved a couple years ago. She's in her late 30s, and she wanted to kill her baby. Her boyfriend at the time wouldn't let her do it, stop her from murdering her child. And uh, she got saved a few years ago, and now her boyfriend is her husband, but her boyfriend's not saved, and he dropped her off to the event. So we prayed for her, her husband and uh, that he would get saved. But God's grace. So this woman, hearing the, the discussion, she, was tell, she told me later, she said, I saw all you men there and I know how I felt. And I'm sure this woman felt very intimidated. And so God graciously brought this woman into the situation to be able to minister to this lady. And so God is good, right? His sovereign work behind the scenes is a joy. And so we're going to look at God's sovereign work um, in the front of the scene <laughs> with Abraham's call here. Uh, this is more fun stuff to teach, more fun stuff to explore, and great stuff to preach on. So we're going to be looking here at um, quite a wild stuff here. Um, I wrote down this brief uh, intro that I'd like to summarize what we're going to get into. Um, what, we, what we have here is a disturbing account of a man driven by fear rather than being led by faith. We see a man who's driven so much by fear that he drags his family and people around him into the dregs of despair and death. This man is considered a great man of faith. Abraham. God gifted in faith, but we see him being pulled into some nasty situation. He pulls his wife into a terrible compromise, and he pulls the king of the land, Pharaoh, into a position where he's plagued in his entire household with disease. And so when we serve our shepherd, he leads us by grace. He doesn't drive us. Um, the, the dogs, it's interesting, um, Renee was obsessed with uh, shepherds, Australian shepherds, sheepdogs. And she was what we, we got one years ago. And, and didn't work out, so we got rid of them. But anyway, <laughs> her, she was biting kids, which is what these shepherds do. I know, I'm sorry, man. Didn't mean to bring up a sore, a sore subject. But um, so we had to get rid of Raya because she was biting a bite bit of kid. But anyway, so here, if you look at these shepherd dogs, they're amazing. But these dogs circle the sheep and they drive them, they nip at their, their heels to get the sheep to go somewhere. But the shepherd 
actually leads the sheep. And the scripture says we hear our shepherd's voice, our good shepherd, and we follow him. And Christ doesn't necessarily drive us with a whip and bite our heels like the dogs do. You know, and it's this interesting contrast there. You know, and obviously we know that our good father disciplines us and we have to be hit pretty hard sometimes to follow the Lord. But still he leads us by his grace as a good shepherd and we follow him because we hear his voice. Yet we're going to see here with Abraham that because of his, con- his compromise, he is driven not by necessarily hearing the sheep and following his, or excuse me, hearing the shepherd and following God's voice, but because God made circumstances so uncomfortable that he had to get out of there. And so we're, let's look at it. Okay, so call of Abraham, chapter 12 of Genesis. Um, I'm going to just grow, grow, go through the first uh, nine verses fairly quickly because we already already taught on this, but I really wanted to keep it in context with what we're talking about today. So, now the Lord said to Abram, whose la- name later gets changed to Abraham, and also his wife Sarai, her name gets changed to Sarah. So excuse me if I accidentally lapse into calling him Abraham and Sarai, Sarah. It probably will happen. So the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and them who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him, he's his nephew. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, which is in Iraq, And Abraham took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, or his nephew, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, which speaks of their servants or their slaves. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan, Abraham passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah, Morah. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And when we look at the word Canaan, what is that name changed to later? Israel, remember? So God gives them this whole new land of Israel. But while the Canaanites are in that land, it's called the land of Canaan. So in the land of Canaan, where it's filled with all kinds of um, polytheism and human sacrifice, God says, okay, Abraham, come into this land that's called Canaan. It's going to be changed later on, not too long from this point. And then verse 7, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Now this word altar in Hebrew is mizbiach. Mizbiach. And I actually practiced my Hebrew. So if you hear, it's kind of had fun on how to pronounce these. So mizbiach. Mizbiach in the Hebrew means a place for slaughter. A place for slaughter. So when the scripture talks about an altar being built, which is the stones that Abraham would build up, it wasn't just a memorial building. He was actually preparing an altar to bring a sacrifice to God, which of course points to Jesus being the perfect sacrifice, right? So this sacrifice had to be made. And so Abraham here does, he builds his his Mizbiach. And from there in verse 8, Verse 6, sorry. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord, Mizbiah, 
And he called upon the name, Mizbiach, and he called upon the name of the Lord, and Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negeb, toward the Negeb. So Abram commits a slaughter. He builds an altar, and he worships the Lord. He calls on the name of the Lord, and he, he, every time God has spoken to him, not every time, but frequently, he would build this altar. It was a memorial to remember when God spoke to him. So God himself was talking to Abram. He said, Abram, I'm going to make a great nation of you, and eventually, we see later on as the, as the New Testament comments on this, the greatest blessing of Abraham's offspring or Abraham's seed is who? Singular. That was my teaching a few weeks ago. Christ. He is the ultimate offspring of Abraham. He is the seed singular. We read in the New Testament. So here we have Abram now. He's journeying from Iraq. He's moving a couple of thousand miles or so, and he's moving into the land of Canaan that gets changed to the name of Israel. And God tells him when he gets to this land of Canaan, the future name is going to be Israel. He says, okay, chill here, man. I'm going to bless you. I'm getting ready to give you a bunch of kids. And a bunch of kids are going to have a bunch of kids, and you're going to multiply and have tons of babies and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. That's what we're all about, right? And so he still goes on toward the Negev. Some of your versions may say Negev. Each way is okay, that translation. Um, in your King James, it may say to the south. The word Negev or Negev, um, Negev, Negev. I'm correcting my Hebrew here as I'm teaching. Um, that it means south. And it's important later on because there's, a, there's a, a alleged contradiction that comes up with people who doubt the Bible when we get later on in this chapter. When they say, look, the Bible says that Abraham went south from Egypt to go to the land of Canaan, even though Canaan was north. It's just simply a, a translation that's different. We, we take the more accurate translation, the newer translations, and don't say that Abraham went to the south. We say he went to Negev, or Negev, or Negev, okay? So that's just an apologetic there for you when, they, when people try to come against and try to show you um, contradictions in God's word. So, verse 10. <clears throat> now, there was a famine in the land. Dustin, do you want to give me a water? Sure. I'm like, we'll do. Parched. Yep. Now, there was a famine in the land. So, just to let you guys know, I'm going to read through the next few verses, and then I'm going to go back and I'm going to comment on it, okay? So don't think I'm skipping through it, through it too fast. So I want you to get the whole context of what's happening. Now, there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. And then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram, ent when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh, or could be also translated the courtiers, or courtiers of Pharaoh, saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abraham. Some translations say he bestowed much wealth upon Abraham. And he had sheep and oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. 
But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abraham and said to Abraham and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him. These were these bodyguards. And they sent him away with his wife that he had. All right. Now let's break this down. We're going to look at some cultural aspects of this as well as some spiritual issues to tie into this. Back to verse 10. So now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went, Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. So a famine takes place in the land of Canaan, which is going to be Israel. <laughs> I want to get that in your minds. So a famine takes place. So he goes down into Egypt. And the, when the scripture says go down, here's another interesting thing too as well. People will try to say the Bible contradicts itself. It go, to say he's going down as if heading south is like, uh, to say going down and heading south are so mutually exclusive, it's insane. But there's two things with this. First of all, you can use the word down to mean south. It's perfectly acceptable. We talk about that, right? Going down to Georgia, going down to Destin, to the beaches. And, but also, it's actually completely accurate, elevation-wise. Because the southern part of Israel, which is where Abram was in the Negev, um, is higher elevation. So you go down from the mountains of higher elevation down to Egypt. So he's going literally down to Egypt. He's heading south down to uh, Negev or Negev, and there's a, because of this famine that was in Canaan in the land of Israel. So Abram goes down there to try to take care of his family. Now the Lord told Abram to go to Canaan and stay there. He was going to bless his people. So what does Abram do? He has a, a problem. He has a conflict. There's a famine here. I need to figure out what to do. Now, God was speaking directly to Abram. It wasn't as if, you know, Abram said, the Lord really spoke to my heart, and he's going to give me millions of grandbabies. It wasn't like that, okay? This, he spoke directly in Abram's ears. So Abram was responsible for staying and waiting on, the, on God's blessing. But this famine that was in the land caused Abram to come to a position of lacking faith. It was fear. It was fear. He saw this famine. He saw, what am I going to do? I've got to remedy this situation. So as Christians today, when we see and run into a difficult situation, we do everything we can to take care of our families and whatever it may be to work that situation. But we don't compromise what God has told us because of fear of the situation that may result. In other words, we're not going to sin. We're in a job that may call us to compromise in some way. Lie on the books or to cover things up. We need to say, no, I'm not going to sin against God. God's word says this, so I'm not going to do that. But fear will come in, and lack of faith will come in, and say, just compromise, because your family's life depends upon your job. If you lose your job, they're not going to eat. Well, we have to trust what the Lord said. And there are times when we're going to be called to do things frequently as Christians that are hard to do. And God doesn't promise, promise us that we're going to keep our nice house or our cars or our nice, cute piece of estate by following him. There will be times in which those lands that we have, those houses may be forfeited for the Lord. He doesn't promise it's going to be all this perfect, rosy thing. But we have to first and foremost serve God. Abram could have been in the position where he lost his many cattle and his camels and all of his sheep. And some of his servants may have died for starvation. But God told him, you stay here. 
Now, Abram had the promise that he was going to have children. So at the same time, Abram could have trusted God's word. He was going to be faithful. He was going to do what he said he was going to do. So here we have this famine and this lack of faith that is taking place. And if I can uh, take this in a bit of a, a metaphorical sense, the famine that was in the land was also a famine in Abram. The famine was the lack of hearing of God's word. He wasn't being obedient to God's word. So he was dying on the inside because he wasn't being fed by the bread of life, who is the word of truth. So instead of feeding spiritually and trusting in God's word, he was actually embracing all of his lack of faith, embracing this fear that I have to go take into this situation into my own hands. Sarai, not long after this, that's about 30 years after this, 25 years, says, I'm going to take God's promises into my hands so I can have a baby. I'm 90 years old. I can't have a child. So she does the same thing. Would she have done that if Father Abraham had taught her and instructed her a really good lesson of walking in faith? Maybe, but maybe not. If Sarai, 25 years in the future, could have looked 25 years back and go, you know what? When we stayed in the, in the land of Israel, there was a great famine. God was faithful. And I'm thankful for a godly husband who showed me a godly example. Unfortunately, Sarai did not have this example here, and it gets really worse. We're going to find that Abram sells Sarah and her life, and that beautiful bond of marriage, he sells her like a piece of chattel, like a, a cow, and he gets money in exchange for it because he wasn't walking in faith. It's despicable. What man would sell his wife? And that's what Abram does. And notice what the scripture says when we go into the New Testament. There's no mention of his compromise there. He's called faithful. He's called a man of faith. He's one of the men that we emulate. Well, that's because God's word is so good. He promises that our sins are cast away as far as the east is from the west and doesn't remember them. When we see the scripture recalling people like Lot and Abram, we see there, right, the, what God says is their sins are forgiven. All their compromises are brought up. So let's continue here. So Abram one, goes down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land. And when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. Now, she's 65 years old. She's a gorgeous lady. <laughs> she lives to be 127. We already talked earlier that this is the point. This is about the cutoff where no one lives longer than 120 years at this point. So their longevity really is, is at this point, she's about half of her normal age. But still, 65, she's pretty good looking. Especially in the desert with all the sun beating on her face. And I can't help but to think of my wife. You know, she's so good with her skincare. I mean, she's got, you know, all this stuff. And Renee looks at I didn't have a chance to talk to her too much about it, but I was hoping to. Because she's like, oh my gosh, and she was in the sun for 65 years and she's so beautiful. I wonder what her beauty regimen was. And I don't mean to make Renee sound shallow because she's not. You know my price. She's a darling. I love her. She's so kind and sweet. But she does love her skin. So I'm reading this, and I, I just couldn't help but to think of Renee. She's like, man, I want that skin. But anyway, so she's beautiful at 65 years old. And so they see this woman, and, 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 and notice us what Abram says. He says in verse 11, When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you're a woman beautiful in appearance. To me, this is his mind turning. Okay, The wheels and gears are going in his mind. He's like, okay. You're beautiful. These Egyptians love beautiful women. They are probably going to want her. 
So all these scenarios are playing in his head of all the compromises and all the things he needs to do to, to uh, keep himself alive. And, I'm sure, to keep his wife alive as well. It wasn't like he was completely devoted to himself. But he's about to compromise in such a wicked way and his mind's turning. Have we ever been there? I know I have. Where you run into a situation, it's like, oh, I can't do this. I can't walk in faith here. I can't obey the Lord because I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to lose this. I'm going to lose face. If I don't do this, my lies are going to be exposed. And you start coming up with these ways of covering your tracks. I've been there. It is awful. I don't want to live like that. Do you guys want to? Of course not. And, and man, especially before I was saved, as a young teenager, man, I just lied all the time so people would be impressed with me. And it was the first thing, when I got saved, I read that Satan was the father of lies, and it, it was just like, dang, I got saved, literally. It hit me between the eyes, and I'm like, oh my gosh, that makes Satan my dad. And when it, oh, it hit me. It took me a couple of months of admitting to the lies that I made, because I would go to bed at night, hopefully this, this ministers to you, I would go to bed at night as like a 13, almost 14-year-old, and I would think, okay, who did I lie to today? Okay, I told Sam that that fish was 13 inches long that I never caught. And I, I told Bill I ran a 40 at, at 4.1, and I can't remember, it's, it was a 4.1. And I, all these things, I got uh, just to impress people, right? And after a couple of months of owning up to my lies, I couldn't cover them anymore, I went to bed going, I don't have to cover my lies anymore. This feels so good. I can talk plainly without wheels turning, like Abraham's wheels are turning, like maybe some of you have in that situation. Oh, how do I cover this up? How do I cover up my sin? And what am I getting plans? Am I going to work out? Is this where Abraham was? Abram was, right? And so he's like, okay, I've got this, this, this plan in motion, Sarai. He, he's in a position where his wife is, is he's placing his wife in danger. That never had to happen. If he would have been faithful in the land of Canaan and just waiting on God's promises, he would not have placed his wife and himself and his servants in this position. We're going to learn later on Lot as well. Lot follows him down into Egypt. Or south into Egypt. Verse 12. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. And then they will kill me, but they will let you live. So this was an actual thing. I was reading the history on this. That in ancient cultures, it was not infrequent for men to kill another man so that they can take his wife. But again, like I was saying earlier in the introduction, it wasn't as if they were like these Neanderthals grabbing, you know, I'll kill you, take your beautiful wife. They were advanced cultures. They had standing in culture. They wanted to seem respectable. So they would commit the sin of murder to have a respectable marriage in society. So you can kill a baby in the womb so you can be respectable and keep your career as a woman. Nothing's changed. Nothing new is under the sun. So this is the situation. So then in verse 13, say you are my sister that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. So here was this half lie, because Sarai was actually the daughter of Terah, who was Abraham's father, but it was a different mother. Ew! Yes, it was his half-sister. Abe married his half-sister. I don't want to say that too often. It's like, bleh, throw up, right? So anyway, so he tells her, just tell him you're my sister, which technically wasn't a lie. But the deceit was this, is that don't let him know that you're my wife. Because, and, and poor Sarai, what is she going to do? These women had no choice in this culture but to do whatever their husband told them. They were beat up pretty bad. Now, when I say beat up, I don't mean 
Abram beat her because we don't have any evidence of that. But they did not have the respect that should have been given to them. And so she's like, well, whatever he tells me to do, I got to do. I don't have a choice. And who knows? She may have very well thought, well, that's a good idea. I don't want you to die. I don't want to die. And if her husband dies, she's in trouble because she can't really have any ownership of that, that cattle or all the riches. So in one sense, this is actually kind of a, a super pragmatic utilitarian view. Utilitarian, as I mentioned earlier, is a, is a common philosophical view, which is highly pragmatic. Whatever you think will work, you go for it. Okay? This is, again, where this is a byproduct of eugenics eugenics and so on and so forth. So they're rationing out what to do, motivated by fear and not faith and not the promises of God. And so they enter into this, this plan. And look at verse 14. When Abram <clears throat> entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, just as Abram thought would take place. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. So these princes or these courtiers would see women... They were like the like back in the eighties, nineties, and probably still today. You had these bands that would look out for women groupies, and the bands would hire these men to look for the most beautiful women, and they would say, "Hey, Vince, you know, whatever, the lead singer for Motley Crue wants to hang out with you." Not really hang out, but you know what I'm saying. So they they would go and select these pretty women to bring to the, all the the big bands. And this is what these courtiers were. They were band groupy kind of guys. And so see this, they're going through the land. Wow, this one was beautiful. They go back to Pharaoh. You gotta see this one. She's gorgeous. And so they go back to the Pharaoh. Pharaoh's like, and they bring her to Pharaoh. And verse 15: when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake. He dealt well with Abram. Like I said, some versions say he dealt bountifully with Abram. And what that means is, like the next verse says, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. So, Abram entered into an exchange in which he told his wife to lie. So he wouldn't be killed, and he gets money for his lie. It's filthy lucre. Reminds me of Judas. Remember Judas betrayed the Son of God for 30 pieces of silver? And what did Judas do later on? Took that money, threw it down, hung himself, died, fell, and then he was fell on the rocks and his gut gushed open. He had sorrow not over his sin against God, but because of his circumstance. I can't help but to think that Abraham is literally selling his wife for camels and asses and for gold had to have deep conviction. Even more so, after the compromise of him trying to save his skin, even more so when he gets paid for it. Ah, our sin has a way of just growing, right? And it just continues to manifest. And God is so good in that oftentimes he allows that sin to come to full fruition so that we're so disgusted, we're like, oh, why did I pursue that? Why? And then all the ramifications that happen are, are just wicked. And so we're going to see what happens in these ramifications because it, it's so crazy in this situation that there was a possibility in which Abram, Abram could have repented and said, go right to Pharaoh and say, look, this is wrong. I, I can't take this. This is my wife. I've sinned against my God. I'm not walking in faith. I'm being motivated by fear. I repent. He doesn't. And so God in his sovereignty, look what he does in verse 17. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues. Because of Sarai, Abram's wife. The word plague in, in uh, Hebrew 
is actually specific to a skin disease. So Pharaoh has a plague and his entire house. That means his servants, everyone else that was associated with him. So this great plague breaks out. And after this great plague breaks out, somehow Pharaoh has a revelation that this was due to Sarai. It could have been God speaking to Pharaoh in a dream. He had done that with people in the past, and it will do so in the future in the scripture, especially with unsaved people. And so um, we see this repeated, by the way, in chapter 20. We'll get into that again, where Abram does the same thing with Sarai again. And crazy enough, his son does the same thing with his wife. We see this repeated. We see this event three times in which these men sell their wives. Gross. So anyway, the Lord uh, warned somehow, some, the Pharaoh has an understanding that this is because of Sarai. Verse 18. So Sarai called Abram and said, <clears throat> what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Do you, this is an incredible irony. God's using a polytheistic, multi, you know, multiplied God-worshipping Pharaoh and actually pushing his hand in such a way that he delivers God's faithful man. Abram didn't say, I'm leaving. He was actually kicked out by an unsaved, polytheistic, multi-God-worshipping dude. The irony is here unbelievable. It's like God, I, God said he's going to bless Abram. And guess what? Nothing Abram did was going to stop God from bringing the Messiah through his line. And so here God is faithful to be um, stick by his word. And so God uses this wicked Pharaoh. He's sent out. And even further, he doesn't take the things that the, uh, Pharaoh does not take away all of the, the stuff that he gave Abram. And Pharaoh gave the men orders concerning him. And they sent them away with all he had had. What does that mean? Orders. These were bodyguards. So as Abram had journeyed and was leaving to go into, back into Canaan, <clears throat> he's being forced, his hand's being forced by a wicked man to go back into faith. Because when he goes back into Canaan, the famine, famine's not over. There's nothing, any indication we have here that the famine's over. So God was going to get Abraham to learn faith no matter what. <laughs> and so God is moving him back up. And as he's doing so, the word would have gotten around that Pharaoh's house had a plague because he had taken a prophet's wife. And God, Yahweh, which they would have known or heard about probably, that Yahweh, this one who the, these weird people are talking about, flooded the whole earth and killed like 8 million people, but saved only 8. So all of these things are trickling down through the Abraham the prophet. And so as he sends them forth, the fair God is so good, and Pharaoh, probably to some degree superstitious, is saying, I need to protect this prophet as he's going back through my land. So he actually protects him with bodyguards. <laughs> so Abram goes in, sells his wife for some gold and some cattle and some asses. He gets a bodyguard treatment to be left by the dictate of a polytheistic Pharaoh. All the while, God is rebuking and convicting him of sin. And all of this is so that God's purposes will be established. And so that Abram, Sarai, and us now, 3,000 years later, look back, 4,000 years later, 4,000 years later, look back and go, God is faithful. Look what he did. If he did was faithful to this guy who sold his wife for gold, is he going to be faithful to me with his promises? You betcha. 
Hebrews says, seeing we're compassed about with such a great crowd, cloud of witnesses, let's lay aside every weight and sin that easily besets us and run with patience the race that is set before us. And then scripture goes on and says to, um, that we're going to, in doing so, we provoke one another into love and to good works. When we're studying the word, we're provoking you into love. We're provoking you into good works. How? By showing you how good God is. So God's faithful to Abram. He's faithful, faithful to Sarai. He's sovereign over all of it. And there's no way that Abram was going to stop God's will. Pharaoh wasn't going to stop God's will. Sarai was not going to stop God's will. And a famine is certainly not going to stop God's will. And so they're sent out to go back so that, that Abram would go on the land of Canaan, and eventually the land would be conquered by the Jews. And so he's going back now to lead this grand new patriarchy in the land of Canaan. Going back to what I had started earlier, um, brothers and sisters, how are we in our walks, have we and are we presently, Possibly in a situation where we're pursuing our sin to such a degree that we are walking not according to faith, but we're walking according to the flesh. So that we're sowing seed to the flesh. We're sowing to the, the wind and we'll reap the hurricane. Abram did this and he, he reaped some wicked things. You know, we don't even know what the long-lasting circumstances was, but I'm guessing possibly his marriage may have been a bit strained. You know, his wife had a headache for 25 years, if you know what I'm saying. Okay? So there were some serious consequences going on. I don't think Abe or Sarai probably trusted Abe so much. Now, who knows those exact circumstances? I don't want to read into this situation and turn a sermon into something that I'm reading between the lines. But we know for sure they were related. They're just like us. They struggle with the same kind of relationships issue that we struggle with as husbands and wives. But God was good to minister to them. So this fear that Abram had allowed him, had, had uh, been driven by steals peace, it steals joy, it steals comfort, and it steals faith. You know, and when we compromise in sin, what are we doing? What losses are, are we afraid of to give up for Christ? If we're compromising in sin, are we fearing financial loss? Are we fearing rejection? Are we fearing a lot of these things around the world? Or are we fearing sinning against God? Not fearing because God's going to squash us, because he's a mean father, but are we fearing because we don't want to sin against Jesus? We don't want to sin against the good, our good God that he is. When we're not walking in faith, we are, when we're pursuing sin, we're not walking in faith. That's just the bottom line. But the reality of the situation is, not only was um, Abraham, Abram compromised in, in uh, being driven by fear, but he also was primarily... Um, it was it was his lack of faith, right? I mean, this is this is the the, the <laughs> what I'm trying to say here. That is the the leaven that leavened his lump. It started with his lack of faith and moved into fear, and so he all of a sudden was fearing that he was going to starve. But he wasn't really. We see no fear of God in this context whatsoever. It was merely Abram. I got to save my skin. So there's no fear of God here. We want to walk so that we are fearing God in a in a right way. So let's, we're going to scoot into chapter 13, and we're going to scoot back to uh, 12 and again. But I want to see um, into 13 a little bit. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had had. So he's going up, he's going north, but he's also going in elevation to Canaan. All that he had had and lot with him into the Negev. Now, as I said, the King James, if you have the King James, it says into the south. It can get really confusing. How's he going up and north into the south? Just not, not a great translation. Better to translate it Negev. 
Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, or and Ai, to the place where he had, now this is what I want to focus on, verse 4, because this is good, it ends well, <laughs> to the place where he had made an altar at the first, a place of slaughter, and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord, and Lot went with him. So here we see Abram. He's now repentant. He didn't have to, he didn't have to call upon the name of the Lord. And so as he's going by to the same altar, the place of slaughter he had built earlier, he's going back, remembering the promise that God had given. And so he's remembering, okay, I, I want to be faithful to God. He promised to be faithful to me. I want to serve him. So he, see, he sees what he had built, sees his place of slaughter, offers a sacrifice, and I'm sure he began to experience the forgiveness of sin. And again, a great faith that he's going to trust the Lord. That's going to sustain him in the land of Canaan through this famine. And in verse 6, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. This is Lot, his nephew, Nabram, and the land where they were couldn't support all of the livestock that they had, probably because this famine was making it difficult. For their positions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And at that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling together. In the land. This is what we call foreshadowing. <laughs> there's, this is setting up for a conflict. The, pa- the Canaanites and the Perizzites, when we get to chapter 14, there's this grand Tolkien like battle that takes place. This is some fun stuff we're going to get into in the future. Um, we'll stop right there in Genesis chapter 13. I want to um, go to Matthew. I want to look at an occasion of an individual who feared and the response of the individual. Who ministered to him out of that fear. That is Peter. So turn to Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. 1422. This is a famous text, and, and I like for all of us to, to uh, I like turning to scriptures instead of just quoting them. Because I just love to see the context. I want to get the whole thing. I want us to have a command over our Bible by turning to that passage. So here we have chapter 14, starting verse 22. Jesus immediately makes the disciples to get into a boat and go before him to the other side of, of the sea. While he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the shore. And it was being beaten by waves, for the wind was against them. It was a wicked storm. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came out to his apostles. And he came to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. And they said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. So they're filled with fear. They're totally petrified. For first of all, because of the storm. Second of all, seeing Jesus walking on the water. thinks it's a ghost. Another account says, and Jesus said, do not be afraid. And Peter answers him and says, Lord, if it is you, command. <laughs> it's okay, Nolan. I'll stop yelling. So um, Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. 
And Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him and said, Truly, you are the Son of God. We've heard this so many times, but isn't it such a joy to read it over and over again? This is, this is our Father, our, our Trinitarian nature of God. This is our, our Shepherd. In this instance here, our Shepherd is so good, and he's saying to his, his son, Peter, trust me. <laughs> I'm not going to let you sink. And it's so sweet. And it just pulls him right out of the deep as he's sinking by the hand. I was just, there's another scripture I was thinking of, and um, that is, um, oh man, sorry guys. Where did it go? I had it in my phone. You know how disorganized I am sometimes. But anyway, the scripture says that the Lord's in, uh, it's in Psalms. He says, I will guide you by my right hand. I love the analogy of God. He's not some pagan God who's like distant, like Zeus throwing little thunderbolts. Or like Thor with a hammer. <laughs> He's this loving shepherd who takes care of us, who reaches by the hand and pulls us out of our faithlessness where Peter was, right? He's, he moves us out of a situation of sin and compromise even against our will. Abram was in this position with terrible sin. And God's like, I'm going to get you out. And then when he dies, we sit back, we see God's deliverance, we see his promises, and we rest. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me to still waters. And yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And going on, it says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. That is a good God that we serve. And so we're just end here with all the, the, the goodness of God and how he dealt with Peter. And that's how he ministers to us. And um, just so foundational, this chapter. As we go further, we're going to look at what God does with Abram later on and Sarai. And God's faithful to, to, to fulfill his promises that um, he's going to bless his people. So let's close in prayer. And um, <clears throat> get something to eat. Or no, we'll have to take communion. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for all the, the promises that you've given us as your believers. We thank you that it is solely your work. And that you've come to issue. Teach us about how wonderful you are. And we see these beauties of your grace. The beauties of your love. The beauties of, of your, your kindness to us. And it really is irresistible. How can we not want to serve you? How can we not want to follow you? Well, actually, the answer is because of our sin, because of our faithlessness, because of our fear. And we stand here as your children redeemed, but we also stand here as um, men and women who are tempted to fall into faithlessness, to fall into fear. I pray that we would trust your promises, that we would rest in your promises, knowing how good you are to us. I pray we wouldn't enter into the compromises that we see Brother Abraham falling into. I pray that we don't, um, as husbands and wives, as mothers and fathers, don't lead our families into terrible dregs of deathly sin. That we don't see the consequences in our families of compromising. But that we would be faithful as fathers, as husbands, as mothers, and as wives. Please bless us, Lord, as we endeavor to serve you. As we endeavor to lay aside every weight and sin that easily besets us. Father, I pray you would bless us as we uh, take the symbols of your body broken for us, the symbol of your blood poured out, that our sins would be forgiven and cleansed, our bodies would be cleansed completely of all sin. 
Yes, we pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.